This is Inspiring Minds, a podcast focused on thought-provoking conversations between BSB students and our world-class faculty. Hi, everyone. My name is Austin Glass. I am a senior class of 2022, um, studying economics in the School of Business at Villanova University with a major in um, honors as well. And I have minors in Spanish, business law, and finance. And I am super excited to be sitting down today with Associate Teaching Professor of Economics, Professor Chris Jeffords, um, to record this interesting podcast. Hi, Austin. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. So kind of getting right into it, could you tell me a little bit about what you do um, in the field of economics and what your interest area is? Yeah, absolutely. So my main research area, if you're going to sort of pigeonhole me into uh, an economics field, would be environmental economics and natural resource economics. The main focus of my research after having joined up with some folks uh, at the University of Connecticut is um, environmental human rights and and focusing on the the relationship that constitutional environmental human rights have or may not have to improved uh, environmental outcomes. So the idea is uh, a country might have a very elaborate provision written to its constitution to enable individuals within that country to obtain the right to clean air, the right to clean water. And I attempt to examine what impact those provisions actually have on environmental outcomes. You kind of answered it there, but um, just kind of like in a nutshell for our listeners, could you explain what economic rights are and environmental rights and kind of where they overlap? Oh yeah, sure. How much time do you have, I guess? Uh, So uh, economic rights are, have been a lot around, I would argue longer than environmental rights. And economic rights are, what are known as second generation rights in some circles, and, and they come after civil and political rights. So economic rights include things like the right to health, the right to uh, unemployment benefits, uh, the right to um, payments if an individual can't um, meet their, their livelihood or their minimum basic needs, the right to medical care, and, and more broadly, from, from which all these are derived, the right to an adequate standard of living. So those are economic rights uh, quickly. And then environmental rights are you know, arguably part of that realm if, if you think about deriving them from an adequate standard of living where individuals need clean air and clean water and a healthy environment to, to live in, to thrive in, to be able to even enjoy other types of rights, like the traditional ones people think of, your civil and political rights, for example. Generally, when we think of economics, we don't always think about like rights and those duties and things. So how did your journey, like what's your background that led you to kind of be a thought leader in this new space? Yeah, well, thanks. I, I appreciate those kind words too. I came into this field by way of graduate school, honestly. I, I floundered around a bit. I, I worked I was an undergrad at Hofstra and joined the economics department there and really loved it. And it was a small department, small classes. And from there, I really just fell in love with economics as a field. And then I went to graduate school for a year at SUNY Albany. So I did a master's there. And while I was doing that, I was working in totally unrelated fields at the time. And so when I eventually landed at UConn, I found and I was assigned to, by chance, uh, Lance Minkler. Lance was part of a group at UConn called the Economic and Social Rights Group which is part of UConn's Human Rights Institute. They have a huge program in human rights, tons of funding, tons of folks from different areas coming in all the time. Uh, It's a really interesting place. And so I teamed up with Lance and got involved with that group. And one particular individual in that group, Rich Hiskis, was working on the philosophy of environmental human rights. 
I don't remember, you know, the specific date or time, but just light bulb moment. I was like, wow, there is a ton of overlap here. And this is just a ripe field to bridge everything together. And, and because I'm such a nerd about interdisciplinary research, uh, it was, you know, from there that it's just been, that's where I've gone uh, forward since that point. So you mentioned philosophy. I'm curious, like, how has that kind of helped you, especially with regard to concepts such as rights? Um, how has that helped you and maybe impacted how you approach empirical research, um, if at all? Again, like, as you, as you pointed out, as an econ major and as an econ in grad school and as, you know, a full-on PhD in econ, you don't get any training. There's no training in rights. There's no training in political science or anything along these lines or philosophy. You have to seek it out on your own and take your course mixes appropriately. And so for me, there was a lot of skills and tool building in grad school that was 100% related to economics and econometrics and all this, this good stuff that are, that are nice tools that you can use. And so kind of at the same time, I'm also auditing some philosophy courses and rights courses. I'm, I'm trying to catch up and reading because I'm I'm feeling very lost, if you will, like in that economic rights group, when people start talking about rights and duties and, and the philosophy and, and evolution of rights and the history of these things, I really had to pick up a lot of that stuff on my own and lean on faculty from, from other departments. And, and thankfully they were very willing to do that. And they see the benefits of interdisciplinarity as well. And I spent a lot of time learning about rights theory and correlative duties and this idea of positive duties to help uh, and negative duties to not interfere with somebody's rights, for example. So these concepts and attempted to figure out ways to apply those to environmental and resource economics. Uh, so as an example, duties not to interfere with somebody's clean air or clean water, and then duties to provide or help to improve uh, environmental outcomes for, for individuals. And so it was a long, long journey. And, and truly, if I'm being honest, I'm not even, I'm not even close there. I, I think maybe I've scratch the surface and I'm very much a novice and uh, on the human rights philosophy side of this stuff. There are a lot of people doing really good research in that area. And a lot of it is way over my head. <laughs> That's something that as a student, it's sometimes the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Um, but I think that's part of the learning process. So, um, so talking about rights and duties, especially in an environmental context, especially like clean air and things, I think that we look at that as constraining possibly because we are kind of accustomed to that not being a priority as kind of the world is now um, with things like carbon emissions and, and gas and fuel usage and things like that. So how do you possibly see these things as constraining and how do you sort of reconcile um, kind of our economic habits with this new important um, concept of environmental rights and duties that obviously are are very important and sometimes take precedence over those things we're used to. Yeah, that's that's also a really good question. So as you hinted at and as you very much know, I'm sure, the, the typical budget constraints or constraints that we we analyze in economics classes are time constraints or budget constraints. And it's very much the case that rights and duties impose constraints on individuals. Uh, and also on governments. And in that context, environmental rights are, are even trickier than, than some other rights because all the rights require money. You have to have finances in order to be able to respect, protect, and fulfill somebody's right to clean air. It's, it's not free. It's going to cost money. And there's a lot of research out there showing or attempting to show how costly it might be to you know, provide somebody with clean air or clean water or to 
provide somebody with a guaranteed job, right? And what that would imply for having to turn off other government programs as a budgetary savings. So there's the actual money side of having to fulfill uh, rights if you're gonna take them seriously. And environmental rights get, get trickier still in that it's not that just you're trying to provide the framework where somebody can vote, for example, or where you're providing somebody with a guaranteed amount of income or some jobs framework. You have to have that framework in place, but also think about that you're trying to provision an actual physical good at times. So if you're going to get somebody clean water, how are you going to do that? And how are you going to ensure that everybody has some if you're thinking about the universality of human rights? And so it's not just a financial constraint, it also becomes a physical resource constraint. And especially when you think about stocks of water aren't equally dispersed across the planet and, and it could be difficult to get everybody the required amount of water they need. And then when you look at the research about what is required in terms of a daily amount of water consumption, you know, an estimate from the early 90s put it at about 13 gallons per person per day. But that was for some standard, you know, amalgam of a human being not taking into consideration so many different sociodemographic characteristics or even just the size of the person, right? It, a baby can't have water to begin with, but then talk about like a one-year-old kid. You can't give a one-year-old kid 13 gallons of water a, a day for, for all of its needs. Maybe an adult human could take that. But then if you also take into consideration the fact that that estimate didn't include the water required to grow and produce food, that's also required to, to live. And it also didn't include the water required for clothing if you live in a society where clothes are you know, not optional, right? which is you know, most of the parts of the world that we're operating in right now. So there are these additional constraints for the environmental rights side that make it even trickier and often um, cause, cause additional hurdles that, that, are, that are difficult to overcome. The practical implementation of providing somebody with clean water. Um, I imagine somebody walking around with gallon jugs and just handing them out, right? I mean, how are you going to do this? Like, what's the infrastructure? Talking about a market-based kind of policy approach at this, I know one of the challenges is accountability. And one question that I have for you as an economist is whether or not you think that incentives or penalties are kind of the best approach at trying to increase accountability, whether it's at a um, local level, whether it's at a business level, but just in general, do you think that one functions better for this particular issue? Um, because of course, the goal is that people want to ensure these rights um, and that they work to do that, but understanding that there has to be some accountability behind it. Do you have any thoughts on which approach may be more fruitful? Yeah, my answer to that is, is yes. Uh, so what, and what I mean by that is I think they can both be useful and in certain contexts. So we're able to show all kinds of ways in which attacks on the production of a product can attempt to control for harmful side effects from the production of that product. So taxing a product to reduce pollution or subsidizing some behavior to encourage that behavior, like you know, making education a little bit cheaper so that more folks can maybe obtain an education, for example. And so we talk about these things on paper and can show how they work on paper, but when you get out into practice, things get obviously a bit trickier and you're not in a vacuum anymore. But there have been very, very interesting and good examples of environmental policies that um, are incentive-based, uh, individually incentive-based, and have had really meaningful effects on environmental outcomes. And one really classic example that's been around since the 1990s is the London congestion charge. And the London congestion charge is a fee that an individual driver has to pay if they drive into this ring that's around you know, London proper. 
So between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m., you have to pay about $20, 20 US dollars if you want to drive, drive in there. And initially when it came out, the fee was about $7. And now, like I said, it's 20. And that program has raised um, billions of dollars. And, and what have the, those billions of dollars done? They've gone into improving roads and infrastructure, improving and fixing bridges to building cycling lanes and improving cycling lanes. And the point of the program, of course, was to mitigate um, localized air pollution and localized congestion. Uh, because, you know, if you make that fee large enough, it will deter some people from driving in. It also has unintended consequences, however, because some people may not be able to afford the fee. Some people may not have the ability to move closer to work because they lack resources. So a program like the London Congestion Charge might incentivize somebody to move closer so they're not driving as much. They may not have the resources to do that. Uh, they might be able to take public transportation, they might be able to carpool, maybe they're able to get a bike, but all these things require additional resources. And so the point of the program was to reduce pollution and congestion, and they very much did that, and it also raised a bunch of money for, for other ends, which environmental economists will argue that you could then use to offset other more distortionary taxes, for example, as, as one example, of course. And another really interesting one, kind of the opposite direction, which I love talking about in environmental economics class is Mexico City's no drive days. So they implemented this program where based on the last digit of your license plate, you couldn't drive on a specific day. So if your license plate ended in five or six, you couldn't drive on Monday and you couldn't drive between 5 a.m. and 10 p.m. And so the basic goal was to mitigate the number of cars on the road at any point in time and to also mitigate localized air pollution in Mexico City. It eventually did that, but when the program first came out, it, it shocked some people into doing some things that weren't intended, so the unintended consequences side. So what did some people do? Well, some, some folks still needed to get to work on those days, and so that meant some individuals bought a second car. And if the car that they already had was relatively used and, and had high on the emissions side, the second car that folks were buying was, was worse than that one. So that the car that they wound up driving on the day with the vanity plates on Monday, for example, that particular car actually had a greater environmental footprint than the existing car that they already had. So people started to drive around in these second cars in some instances where the pollution from that car was more than if they were just allowed to drive their other car. Uh, and then a black market also cropped up in the creation of uh, license plates. You, you can think about those or we can think about the way in which we can apply policy on paper and then we put it into action and we see policies like this, these incentive-based policies, um, they are um, somewhat uh, difficult and you have to evolve them over time and they have to be updated. You mentioned the word consequence and that kind of makes me think about the future. So do you have any advice for students who may be interested in sustainability and its intersection with um, economics or even business as a whole? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So in, from a immediate and practical perspective, if you're talking about just things right now, you have the sustainability program at Villanova, of course, right, which is really robust and, and, and across many different areas of, of the university. Uh, so that's at Villanova proper. If you're just thinking about this in, in general, you really have to understand, an individual really needs to understand that uh, sustainability is inherently a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, ordeal, uh, and as a trajectory that crosses multiple dimensions. So just being an economist isn't going to necessarily be the best path forward for sustainability. Instead, you wanna learn all of your economics, but you also wanna learn about environmental science and environmental studies. You wanna learn about the political process and how you could implement environmental policies. 
tackling regional and local and global climate issues is going to really require the views and perspectives of individuals of all walks of life and of all disciplines. And so the, the way that folks can do that is just by, to the extent that, that they can and they have the freedom and the resources, diversifying their academic portfolio, volunteering if they can, trying to obtain internships in these areas, uh, really just gobbling up as much information, podcasts, articles as you really can on sustainability because um, you'll get a lot of training in a specific discipline as you go through college, for example. But for sustainability, it really is going to require uh, folks to, to branch out Professor Jeffords, thank you so much for this super interesting conversation. I definitely learned a lot and it helped me kind of think about how as an um, person interested in economics, I can instigate change in the environmental space. So thank you for this. Oh, th thank you, Austin. It's been really great. And I, and I appreciate uh, getting to know you here and, and, and this interview. And uh, best of luck going forward with uh, graduation and finishing up your, your senior year. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inspiring Minds. Stay tuned for our next installment featuring more VSB students discussing research topics with our world-class faculty. 